0: is the Disability Law Show yeah. on
1: the iHeartRadio <laughs> Talk <such> Network. That's fantastic!
0: <laughs> All righty, oh, please and, do that. Uh, can you do that? I know. I know. That's it. that's it. That's our it, theme from now on. Can we do that? Yes. Is there a reason done. we can't do that? No. Nope. We're gonna We're gonna go to the phones right away, even before I intro the show, guys. <laughs> we're gonna go. That's A Team's our new Our new. But who are you though? I'm, I'm the closest one to being fully bald, so I'm Mr. T. So, I don't know who Tamar is going to be in this entire story, guys, but it's uh, it's looking pretty good. James has a nice head to He's George Papard. That's all there is to it. There you okay. are. All right, welcome. Uh, Disability Law Show here on uh, News Talk 1010. Uh, we are the A-team. Well, Tamar and James are. I just kind of, I'm just i kind of a bit of a boat anchor, but I got intro to intro the show, so that's what I do. John Skull's here, along with James Fireman, Tamar gopian and both of them, courtesy Sam Fierro, Mark and LLP. Uh, you want to reach out, we tell you this is the time over the next hour to call in. Maybe you are not on long-term disability. Maybe your disability insurer says, yeah, I know it's been two years and the uh, the last few grains of the hourglass have run through. It's time for you to go back to work. Not the case. Maybe it's a variety of problems. Maybe you've been told to appeal. There could be a million different things. It could be you. could be a family member. could be a colleague. doesn't matter. Call us here during this hour. Be that fourth voice on air. We'd love to get you on here with us. 416 872 1010 is how you uh, go about that emails which we're going to get to here in just a bit help at disabilityrights.ca but again live 416-872-1010 ready to rock and or roll guys james give us a bit
1: of a week that was tell me a story well first of all i just want to say that um i pity the fool that has a problem with the disability insurance <laughs> you that was coming. And, and doesn't call it to get some free legal advice okay <laughs> i could help it um in any case let us talk so One of the very common themes that we have amongst not just callers to the show, but certainly people who call us off air for advice and that we speak to and who eventually retain us is frustration. Mm -hmm. People are frustrated dealing with disability insurers, and for good reason, because they go into the process, they apply for benefits, believing that if they are legitimately disabled, if they have the support of their treating doctors, that they should and will get disability benefits. But alas, that is often not how it goes. And people have difficulty comprehending what has stop them from getting the benefits when everything seems to be lining up, especially when they had been getting benefits for some period of time. And I have a a case I'm dealing with right now that is a pretty good example of why there is frustration and what is really going on behind the scenes. So this individual is someone who is suffering from a number of different conditions, all of which have been diagnosed and, in fact, accepted by the insurer. He was approved for disability benefits for the first two years during the own occupation period of his policy. But of course, as things get closer to that two year mark, the insurer sets the wheels in motion to find a justification to cut off the benefits. And how do they do that? Well, they start by spending money. When an insurer is spending money that they don't have to, that's a red flag. It means that they are looking for a way to cut you off. They don't have to spend money they're not going to. If they are spending money, it's because they think it will save the money down the road. So keep that in mind. So the first thing this insurer does is they hire a company to do a functional capacity evaluation essentially this is a series of tests meant to discover the extent of your ability to do various different tasks that would be associated either with the work that you are doing or work that the insurer says that you might be able to do down the road and so you know some of it is strength based but some of it is more just being able to sit in a particular position and type or switch between sitting and standing in different positions and what have you it's not necessarily an endurance test by any means but it is just a series of different activities that are done over the course of a few hours so they do this functional capacity evaluation an fce for short for my client and he has extreme fatigue it is documented throughout his file this is someone who is sleeping 14, 16 hours a day, and not by choice. It is just that he has this chronic extreme fatigue that does not allow him to be active. And this was not the way it's always been. He was in fact quite active in the past. And so he's been on disability for two years. He goes to this FCE. It lasts four hours and in the report The assessors noted that although he completed the four-hour assessment, after the first couple of hours, his ability to function went down considerably, and his scoring was much worse in the last half of the examination than in the first half. Now, the assessors concluded that he was capable of working a four-hour day, and in fact, on a regular basis. That's a pretty questionable conclusion. In fact, I would argue it's absolutely wrong. He wasn't even able to do a four-hour day once, let alone four hours a day, five days a week. But nonetheless, this was their conclusion, already very questionable. But what did they do with that? Well, from there, they go and they get a, a gainful employment summary, basically just a brief summary of what occupations my client might be able to perform given the findings of this functional capacity evaluation. And the key here is that whatever occupations they say he can do, they have to be able to pay him enough so that he can earn a commensurate income, an income that would pay him about 60% of what he had been making before he went on disability. Here's the problem. When they do this general employment summary, they don't pay any attention to the findings of the FCE, even though that's exactly what they're supposed to do. They instead assume that my client's going to be capable of working an eight-hour workday, five days a week, week after week. And so they say, oh, well, there's all of these jobs that you can do. They find three or four different occupations that would satisfy the commensurate earnings test, all of which would require him to work at least eight hours a day in order to make the commensurate income. So none of those are appropriate then they have his file reviewed by a doctor to provide an opinion they don't have him assessed in person he never actually meets with the doctor the doctor just reviews his file so already question the value of that but nonetheless the doctor looks at it and says okay well he's capable of doing you know light to sedentary work you know as long as he's not exposed to any high stress environment he doesn't have to do anything requiring significant uh, cognitive load, or rapid decision-making. So I, I don't know what it is they expect that they're going to find, what kind of occupation is going to be paying him 60%, which would be roughly $30,000 a year if he's working four hours a day and you know can't do anything that, re, that, that will be stressful at all or that requires rapid decision-making and probably can't work more than one day like that a week. And yet they conclude that he's capable of working in another occupation. So I bring all of this up because if you look at this rationally, you know he's saying, I mean, I can't function for more than an hour or two a day. How can they possibly say that I'm going to be able to return to some occupation, even if it's completely sedentary? Because he knows that he can't. His doctors are saying that he can't. And if you look at the information that the insurance company has generated on their own, it is a very compelling case that he can't do it. And yet they have ignored their own information and pieced things together in such a way that allows them to suggest that he's able to do it. When if you look at it rationally, if you use any common sense at all, it's obvious that he's just not capable of working. And so when people are frustrated with the process, this is why, because they can't possibly understand how, it, how the insurance company can get from A to B. It doesn't make any sense. And the reason it doesn't make any sense is because it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> it's because they are just looking to say whatever is necessary to put on paper in order to justify the decision, which we all at this point understand is really what they're trying to get to anyway. So the problem really is a matter of expectations. If you go in expecting your insurance company to use logic and reason, then you will be frustrated. Sooner or later, they will not. But here's the good news. When that happens, that's exactly what we are here for. Give us a call. It is a free consultation. We will review your case. You don't need to provide a credit card. If you like what you hear and you decide you want to go ahead, then we can do something about it
0: you know it's amazing because i can see all this which may manifest as a physical disability with what you just said and all that rigmarole it's going to turn into an anxiety and mental disability to go along with thank you to the insurance company i'm sure that have it's quite a bit right all the time yeah yeah what's uh, what's your view tomorrow We'll Well, get that after a short round. We got time. Yeah, go ahead. What do you
2: think? Okay, good. Uh, Because when I hear the word frustration, it actually brings to mind a a legal concept. And so I wanted to add on to James's opening salvo and talking about frustration in the context, actually, of employment. I'm not going to dabble too far, but I think it is segueing nicely into what James describes, which is a profile of an individual who very clearly is disabled from working. Uh, I'm not sure where your client's at in terms of the own occupation or any occupation, James, but most certainly it, it raises a profile of an individual who likely is totally disabled in any work setting. And so the add-on question that I typically get is, well, what happens to my job? So what happens to my employment in a setting like this? And my overall advice is that your employer is actually entitled to know generally what's happening with your health, uh, but only your prognosis, not really the details, not really the diagnosis, if you're on claim and approving and getting disability benefits. But if it gets to a point where you're not capable of returning, and that is fairly clear in the medical information, then it creates a profile as a legal principle that your employment may be frustrated. And this is a concept that's protected by the Employment Standards Act, and there are actually minimum entitlements for termination pay and potentially severance pay for individuals who are not capable of returning back to their job as a result of their disability. What I want to make clear, though, is that it has to be triggered and it is a legal concept. So when you think about frustration, it is something that you absolutely want to get legal advice on and it should not be triggered arbitrarily. And there's actually not even really a time frame involved. So if someone is on claim and you're listening and you're thinking, well, I'm unlikely to return back to my job, I'm still getting my disability benefits. What happens to my employment? generally speaking, you probably want to keep it open for a period of time and then mm-hmm. may make an assessment down the road as to whether or not you want to trigger the end of your employment on this concept of frustration of contract.
0: And with that, guys, we'll slip into a quick break. Get back to more this. will give you some time. If you're listening to Arm Yourself with a Phone and give us a call at 416-872-1010. Failing that, we'll dive into our email. And that would be help at disabilityrights.ca. We'll continue more of the Disability Law Show and the Bell Talk Radio Network. Alrighty, let's get back into it. It is, uh, one twenty. Welcome to the show, Disability Law Show News Talk 1010. John Scholes, along with James Fireman, Tamara Gopi. You can reach out to both of them and their teams anytime. Always ready for a chat and to educate you and alleviate some stress and some strife, which uh, dealing with an insurance company can sometimes turn into. Right? that number, one 821 5900 Help at disabilityrights.ca and you can also go to ltdfaq.ca. That's a good little website for short, concise, non-legal these definitions and answers about ltd ltd faq.ca uh anonymous of course and free you can use that anytime guys first email Juan is our guy says i injured my back at work about six months ago uh, through WSIB, I was able to get some rehab that helped a lot. My doctor has cleared me to try a gradual return to work with modified duties next month. My work recommended that I apply for long term disability benefits, which I did, but I was denied. The insurance company said I did not qualify for benefits because I was, quote, not continuous or continuously totally disabled through the elimination period or beyond. What does that even mean? Can I fight these guys?
2: Well, there could be a possibility of fighting these guys for sure, Juan. I think that what I would defer to is what his own medical team are recommending about his capacity to work. But to specifically address his first question, which is what does that mean, that continuous total disability through the elimination period? Let's get into that part of it first. The elimination period is actually the hold period or the waiting period before your LTD benefits start to kick in. Usually, that lines up with potentially either a short-term disability plan that your employer might have or EI sickness benefits. Either way, it's typically 17 to 26 weeks before you get $1 from the LTD insurer. But when the LTD insurer is looking at your application and is looking to see whether or not they are going to issue that $1, they are looking to see that you are totally disabled pursuant to their policy for that whole period of time and beyond. And so what they are seeking is medical information that one cannot do, typically his own occupation. That's most group disability policies that we look at. The initial definition to qualify for long-term is are you totally disabled from your own occupation? And so it certainly sounds like he was, and it sounds to me like he may have even been compensated for a period of time. And so I'm a little bit puzzled by actually the disability insurer's conclusion Other than to assume that perhaps the threshold or the partial work capacity exceeds perhaps the assumptions being made as to what total disability actually means under the policy. And the thing is, most disability policies don't actually define that threshold of work. There could be some policies that have a partial definition, or sorry, partial disability definition or term. But either way, it's not like if you're working 20 hours a week that you're not necessarily totally disabled. But the devil is in the details, and I feel like I may say this time and again. But that capacity to work and that allowance for one to get back to work in some form or setting really will influence whether or not the disability insurer actually owes LTD benefits. The policy probably speaks to the fact that there is something owing, perhaps there's something to the extent of a top-up payment. So if you have a partial work capacity that the insurer may still actually have to pay you benefits for a period of time, but it will depend greatly on what that looks like for one. And frankly, if it's even successful, right? Because if he ends up going back to work, perhaps it's a gradual return. I have seen quite commonly that that effort is perhaps not successful and under medical advice, he's off work again, and therefore he absolutely should be entitled to long-term disability benefits. So I think in that scenario, it's it could be a wait and see and a further deeper dive into the medical information and what his own doctor is allowing him to do in terms of his capacity to work. The other element of it as well is this workers' compensation feature, and I don't know how heavily this is being uh, influenced in terms of the decision by the disability insurer not to approve but their policy probably says they get a credit for your workers' compensation amounts if you're getting an income amount. So Juan tells us he got rehab and uh, you know treatment support by his worker, workers' compensation claim. He doesn't say anything to us about getting an income support, in which case there is no credit that goes to the LTD insurer. So I'd want to understand a little bit more on that and whether or not the decline decision actually comments on the workers' compensation piece. Because I can think of a situation where um, there was a disability insurer who said, well, since you're getting compensation for workers' compensation, we're not going to pay you LTD. And that definitely doesn't hold water. You may still be entitled to long-term, but they may just take credit for it. And what you're getting as an income support from workers' compensation perhaps exceeds or is greater than what you're getting for LTD. Fine. But it still doesn't mean that you don't meet the test for long-term right, under their policy. So. I think that there are a couple of things going on here in Juan's claim, and there absolutely could be a basis to challenge the disability insurer for top-up payments or a recurrence claim. What do you think, James?
1: No, I'm pretty skeptical. I, uh, <laughs> About Juan a, or n-
2: the disability insurer?
1: <laughs> not of Juan. I mean, I, I need more information, of course, but the circumstances as they line up show that I, I mean, he's going to be returning to gradual duties next month. So I I can absolutely buy that he has had a legitimate disability keeping him off work throughout the elimination period and at present and for the next month or so before he's ready to do the gradual return to work. But the insurer knows that if he's successful in his return to work, it means that at most you're looking at one, maybe two months if you include top-up of benefits that they would owe, which is a pretty modest amount, and an amount where most people are not going to spend the time and energy pursuing. It. They're likely just to take the denial and say it's just not worth hiring a lawyer or even going by myself in small claims court to challenge. And my guess is that's exactly what's happening here. The insurer is recognizing that it's probably too small for one to pursue, so they're just rolling the dice and assuming that he won't. And they're probably right, they're probably right because it's very difficult to bring a lawsuit for a small amount. But the good news is that in Ontario we have small claims court. And small claims court is a very good option if you're talking about pursuing something that you are absolutely entitled to, but it is a modest sum. And that would be the case here. The the jurisdiction for small claims court is Ontario in Ontario. Goes up to $35,000. And so, what that means is if you have a claim that is for $35,000 or less, you can pursue it in small claims court and you don't need a lawyer to do it. So, you can do that on your own, which is useful because there aren't a lot of lawyers that are going to be prepared to take on cases that are within that range of damages where the amount of money you're pursuing is at that level because. For just about every disability case, there is a significant amount of work that goes into it. And lawyers are in this for, you know, their business decisions that have to be made. And we simply can't take on every case, even if it's a good one, if it is too modest in terms of how much money is available. And that is the reality of the practice of law. It is very expensive. start litigation so there is a threshold there and the insurers are aware of it but i would encourage anybody who has a claim that is relatively modest but is solid as it appears to be in Juan's case to not let that go to pursue that in small claims court because it is a very good option and just so people understand out there if you're thinking oh well even though you say you can do it without a lawyer, isn't it going to be too difficult for me? I don't have any legal experience, I can go to law school. It's not a problem. Small claims court is actually designed for people who don't have lawyers. It is intended to be a way for people to gain access to the justice system so that you don't have to go out and hire a lawyer if what you're looking to pursue is relatively modest. The rules are very simplified. And the judges, they're actually deputy judges in the Small Claims Court, go well out of their way to make sure that you're not going to get tripped up on rules of evidence or procedure just because you haven't gone to law school. And so it is all very simplified. And if you do have a solid claim and in a disability context, if your doctors are supporting that you're not able to return to work, then you have a solid claim. If you have a solid claim, if it's for a small amount, I would highly recommend going through small claims court and pursuing that. Don't let them get away with your money.
0: Guys, again, another short break. I want to ask you a question about that when we come back, James, something that's on our list of questions. Actually, we'll get that here in just a minute. But in the meantime, still got time to call into the radio station, talk to us, bring it on. It's free. Come on, 416-872-1010 to make that call. Email is help at disabilityrights.ca. Thank you, Juan, for your email. We'll get to more as we whittle our way through that pile here this afternoon on the Disability Law Show right here on the Bell Talk Radio Network. Coming right back. Welcome back, indeed. One thirty-five on your Saturday afternoon, and we were just talking about once email, uh, James, and kind of a you know a, a question I wanted to ask off the tail end of that is, now it's, when you represent someone for disability claim, um, a lot of the worry is okay, there's going to be stuff like litigation, maybe doctors' records, reports, filing fees, blah blah blah. It's it's a, it's a laundry list of stuff. Who pays for that stuff? Because I know that causes a lot of people stress, right?
1: Well, I mean, typically it is the responsibility of the person applying to to pay for whatever documents are needed to support uh, the claim. That's sort of the what's written to most policies. But as a matter of practice, it's usually done directly between the insurers and the, the medical providers. Uh, and often there's not the expectation that you're going to pay out of pocket. It's actually pretty rare that you see an insurer insist on that. Um, so it, it's not something that's really going to be a problem in most cases. There's the odd case, though, where you see uh, particularly where there's a doctor who's just not being responsive. And then it's not really an issue of payment. It's just really a matter of getting the documents there. The insurer may at some point and sometimes quite reasonably just give up on trying to get, get records from a doctor that isn't being responsive. And so in those circumstances, you may be on your own to your doctor. Uh, get a copy of the records and make sure that they're sent to the insurer. But the the payment issue is usually not one that is something that's going to prevent a claim, especially if you're not able to afford it and you bring that to the insurer's attention. It would be pretty difficult for the insurer to insist on you paying for it if you weren't able to, um, especially if you're not making an income, even though I think in most cases the policy is going to suggest that they have the right to do that. It's not one that I see exercised. Tamar?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think the other part of this is that I want our listeners to know that if we're on the case, we're going to incur all those expenses. So I don't want people to feel like that part of it is really a barrier of retaining us uh, to help with a disability claim. And oh, I
1: must have that... missed the context of the question. I thought we were talking about in terms of the application. That's so, right. Yeah, Yeah, why why don't you go in and correct my mistakes? No,
2: no, it's all, and I think it's important actually for people to know, because I actually had a call with someone this week who was saying, look, the insurer just denied my claim, never asked for an update, you know, they should be paying for that information, why didn't they pay for that information? And I absolutely agree with James that the onus and responsibility usually while you're on claim is to ensure that those reports and that information is being provided to the insurer. Some insurers will offer to pay for it, but generally speaking, they'll point the finger back at the claimant to make sure that those reports and those records are there. But in the context of a legal claim, when we start a legal claim on behalf of our clients, it costs them absolutely nothing. We will incur all the court fees, we will incur all the expenses surrounding, you know, building the claim, getting medical medical reports, you know, proceeding uh, with the next steps of the litigation, typically headed to a mediation. And so it really shouldn't be out of pocket for the claimant or a client at all whatsoever. And in fact, when we go to negotiate our disability settlements with the insurers, we will actually ask for that to be compensated back. So it's all part of the conversation with a disability insurer on the work that we do, the services that we provide, and ultimately the buyout of the settlement that we get on behalf of our clients.
0: I want to move on to Tanisha, guys. Tanisha is our next email up. By the way, you can send one along anytime if it doesn't appear on the show. We'll get answered regardless by James or Tamar's team, and that is help at disabilityrights.ca. Tanisha says, I've been diagnosed with a rare autoimmune condition that causes swelling throughout my body. When this is aggravated, it makes working impossible and most day-to-day functions unmanageable. It's much worse with stress. I'm an upper-level executive for a large national transportation company. The job is pretty stressful to begin with, but it has become much worse over the last two years when there was a new VP appointed in my division. The situation got really bad at work and the stress aggravated my condition to the point where I couldn't get out of bed My doctors have said that I can't go back to work uh, in any environment because the stress would cause me to regress significantly. I applied for LTD insurance, but my claim was denied because they said it was a workplace issue. I get that my work environment was part of the problem, but if my doctors are saying I can't work anywhere, shouldn't I be entitled to benefits?
2: Yes. Yes, Tanisha, you should be entitled to benefits. This is too easy for disability insurers to take this fallback position, John, and James could tell you the same thing, that when there are workplace stressors, and those stressors actually cause or contribute to the disability profile, I see time and again disability insurers saying, hey, this is all just a workplace conflict issue. You should work this through with HR and get back to work in essence. But that's not what Tanisha is describing to us. She's actually saying that she's got health issues that are made worse by stress. And it just so happens that it's the work setting that caused that stress. But I would bet if we asked her, she's been out of the work setting now for who knows how long as she's going through the process of applying for long-term, so she's probably been off for a number of months already, does she have a persistence of symptoms? I bet she does, because she's probably put together a long-term disability package with the support of her doctor or multiple doctors saying she should not be returning back to work. So... I think that when I see profiles like this I think it's the persistence of symptoms that are really important and the fact that there are ongoing functional limitations that you really do want supported by the medical information and throwing that back into the adjuster's face to say hey regardless of what was happening at work My condition in and of itself is worsened by a result of stress. And this could have come from a family setting, not just a work setting. So I I actually get a little bit hot and bothered when I see these kinds of profiles. When you've got a veritable health issue, which is made worse by the work setting, and then to top everything else off, you've got the disability insurer resisting your claim on an improper basis. So it screens out a legal claim in my mind. James, what do you think?
1: I entirely agree. It's an automatic response whenever there is that workplace issues box checked on the attending physician statement at the outset. And I'm not suggesting that anybody should try and hide that type of information because it can be relevant to understanding the context of how a disability came about. But when there's also clear evidence that shows that the disability is generalized, it's not going to go away as soon as the person's removed from the from the workplace, then you have a valid claim. And it's as simple as that. And usually it's pretty obvious actually, because by the time the insurer is making its decision, you know, four, or six months down the road after the elimination period is over, that person has been removed hmm. from the workplace environment for an extended period of time. And if they are still having the same types of mental health issues with depression or anxiety, even though they're not faced with those workplace stressors on a day-to-day basis, that is very compelling evidence that they have a generalized condition that is going to impact them regardless of where they are because they're not at work anymore. You can't argue that it's just a function of being at work if it is still happening four to six months after they have stopped working. It's as simple as that.
0: Got a uh, text in here, guys. By the way, texting is also an option during the show. Seven ten ten. That's what you want to text to. Seven ten ten. Is it true that if you belong to a union, you can't hire a lawyer for your
1: case? What do you think? Hard no. Hard, hard no. <laughs> Hard no. Sorry, I jumped on that. Tomorrow, do you want to take it? No,
2: that's fine. I mean, look, it, it, it's a pretty simple one because uh, it, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're precluded from hiring a disability lawyer. And the important part is, is that you actually want to check what your collective agreement says about this. Now. I get lots of consults with unionized individuals who have never even looked at their collective agreement. and That's okay. They don't have to. Send it to me. I'll take a look at it and I can tell you in five minutes whether or not you're actually in that category, a small category of individuals where Ontario courts have said, look, you're relegated to the union and the grievance and arbitration process you know, via the union in order to push the envelope with the disability insurer. But the vast majority of people who are unionized, we can assist. And there's a lot of gray in one or two of the leading cases in Ontario about whether or not you're relegated to that grievance process. So we've had a lot of success in getting confirmation from insurers that this is not an issue, uh, a lot of success in getting unions to provide their green light as well, and their blessing to allow claimants to hire us and proceed with their legal claims and settle their legal claims. So it should really not be a barrier. But we do routinely will ask people to send us their collective agreement so we can put some eyes on it and make sure that we've done our due diligence right out of the gates uh, as to whether or not it's going to be an issue so that we're completely transparent with people right from the start as to whether this might be a problem moving forward
0: thank you so much for the textiles are anonymous of course 71010 if you want to motor one over if not you can pick up a phone in the next couple minutes and reach out live on air and ask your questions no stupid questions there's no questions too uh, oblivious or too silly you want to ask here about your uh, long term disability insurer because it's a crazy world dealing with them for sure how do you do it 416-872-1010 that is the number and we will continue with the disability law show here on the bell talk radio network and we are back. It one fifty. a few minutes to go. Still got some time to grab a phone. Lines are open at your convenience. It is 416-872-1010. You can text as well, 71010, to reach out here now to uh, James or tomorrow. And ask your questions. Beyond that, they're always reachable through email, help at disabilityrights.ca and one eight five five eight. 5900, uh, James, I'll throw this text to you. It says, when a person is putting together an LTD application, what sort of information needs to be included to get their claim approved?
1: So typically, there is a package of uh, application forms that need to be completed. There's usually three forms that we see as sort of a starting point. So one of those is a statement from the applicant. It's usually called the employee statement if it's a, a group disability policy through your employer. So this is something that you would fill out on your own. And it's got basic information about uh, your address and age and so forth, your disability, the medications you're on, which doctors you're seeing and the way that you say that your disability is impacting you and your ability to function. Then there is a form that your employer has to fill out. And that is typically going to show your position, how much you were earning, what the job requirements are uh, for your position, whether it's a physical or sedentary job and what types of functional requirements there are when you last worked and so forth. But the last form is the one that is really by far the most critical. And that's what's called the attending position statement. And so that's going to be filled out by your primary physician. If you have a physical disability, it's going to be your, your family doctor. If you have a mental health disability, it may be your family doctor, or if you have uh, a psychiatrist or a a psychologist who's providing you with treatment, then they may be asked to fill that out, or you may have one from each of them. But that's the attending physician statement. So you may do one or two of those, or your doctors will fill those out and submit those to the insurer. So those three forms are the basic information that is sent out. But along with that, there's other information that you want to make sure gets into your insurer's hands. So, you want to make sure that they have access to the clinical notes from your treating treatment providers, your doctors or physiotherapists or Uh, psychologists or counselors, what have you. You want to make sure that it is well-documented, not only that you have these conditions, but that you are getting treatment. And that's how you show it, by making sure that your treatment providers will send that information to the insurer so that there is no question about what you are doing to address your disability. And within that, there's typically going to be information about medications you're taking and treatment modalities and so forth. It may well be useful for your insurer to get a copy of the full job description, your employer will typically provide that directly if it's necessary. And often there is some amount of communication to make sure they have all that sort of information between the insurer and the employee, employer directly. Remember that if it's a group policy, your employer is the group policy holder. So the policy is actually not in your name. It's in your employer's mm-hmm. name. And so as the policy holder, the employer is entitled to some information about the process. So they will know that you've applied and they will know what the status is of your application. And there may be some communication just to make sure that information about your specific job is provided to the insurer. But even though they are the group policy holder, they won't be provided with copies of your medical documents. If they are, that's totally inappropriate. And that's a whole bigger issue. But that we rarely have ever see happen. So that's really what you you want to make sure is there. At the outset, uh, oftentimes people will really just rely on their family doctor to submit their records, and that can be a mistake. If you have wider treatment, if you are seeing specialists, if you are getting mental health treatment, you want to make sure that those other treatment providers' records are also being provided to the insurer right at the outset. Your best shot of getting approved is at the beginning. And you, want to get a, you don't want to have to hire us to dispute a denial, at least not at the outset. You want to get approved for your benefits at the outset and for as long as possible before you have to hire a lawyer. Because everything you recover through a lawyer, whether it's us or anyone else, you're going to be paying legal fees on. And so you want to minimize the extent to which you need a lawyer to help you get benefits. So you want to give yourself the best chance to get approved at the outset and the best chance to continue getting those benefits for as long as possible.
0: I want to get over to a call 416-872-1010 is how you do it richard thanks for uh joining the show today how are you Fine, thank you good what's on your mind uh i already um told the guy there and he explained to me so i think i understand what he said there so that's okay for now all right are you yeah, want to run, run a bias or are you okay I'm okay so far, yeah, thanks. Okay, okay, good. Okay, there you go. Well, you always have the option to uh, to reach out to the firm afterwards, right? So I'm going to give you that number before we... Okay, uh, that would be good here. You can it at 1-855-821-5900. Richard, again, one 855 821 And uh, email is help at disabilityrights.ca. I got another text, guys. We got time for this. Yeah. We do. says, uh, guys, I'm on LTD for generalized anxiety and so far my insurance has been supportive. At one po- At what point would I need a lawyer in the event they discontinue slash deny my benefits?
2: So here's what's interesting about this text message is that it was actually something I was going to raise as a back end to what James was communicating to us about what should be part of my package in terms of applying for disability benefits. And the reason why I want to hone in on this is because what this text message describes is a generalized anxiety condition. And when we see these kinds of mental health disability claims, the details become incredibly important and those details being uh, explained and extrapolated and put into to the medical information and the application material that you're submitting to the insurer, very, very important. Now, the text message says to us, look, I'm on claim, I'm getting benefits, You know, what's the point in time that I need to, to speak to a lawyer or hire a lawyer? Absolutely, if your disability benefits are denied for any reason and your doctors are still supporting that you're not capable of returning back to to work, then you do have a crystallized right to absolutely hire a lawyer and start a legal claim. The thing is, though, you want to make sure that you've got that advice ahead of time. So I don't want our listeners to think, gosh, you know, I'm going to wait to speak to Tamar and James until my claim gets cut off. No, no, these consults are totally free. We'll talk to you at any time. And in fact, if you think that's where it's headed, sometimes you do want to get some context around, look, what am I being asked? You know, is there specific information the insurance company is looking for? What can I do to try and actually avoid the the possible outcome of my claim being denied prematurely? So, if you are advancing a mental health disability claim, you absolutely have a valid disability claim, but you've got adjusters who have you know, Very little medical background, very little understanding of how to deal with individuals with mental health conditions. And so my primary advice there is you've got to spoon feed that information to the adjuster. And that information of your functional limitations, the treatment efforts that you're making, the overwhelming advice from your providers that you shouldn't be working All of that can absolutely come from you when you're asked by your adjuster, but should also absolutely come from any of your treatment providers as well. So if you're listening and you're wondering, look, I've got a claim for anxiety or depression, you know, are there missing pieces of information? What can I do to ensure that my benefits continue to be paid? You know, that goes back to as well, the comments that James made about the importance of ensuring that you've got comprehensive, detailed medical information over to the insurance company. James, last words?
1: No, I think you've covered it all really well. Beautiful.
0: And with that, guys, we are pretty much wrapping it up for today. You can always reach out now that we are done, as we've mentioned throughout the whole show, to James or Tamar and the team. Numbers 1 855 821 5900. Use it anytime. 1 855 821 5900. Help at disabilityrights.ca or simply disabilityrights.ca as well. Get to the firm website. And we'll catch you next time on the Disability Law Show here in the Bell Talk Radio Network.